This is Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, this is Bob Johnston, and you're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio, 89.5 FM and 92.5 FM in good old McLean County in Bloomington Normal, 88.3 FM in Pontiac, 97.1 in Lincoln, 89.1 in DeKalb Sycamore. We're going to have a great show for you today, and of course we're covering most of central Illinois, some of northern Illinois, and we hope to be expanding uh, our broadcasting area even further, north or south. Uh, we depend on you and on your donations, so remember always that we are brought to you by you, and you make our show possible, and you make bringing EWTN, EWTN to you possible as well. So anything that anyone can donate is always greatly appreciated. And you can check us out on CatholicSpiritRadio.com. Again, our website is CatholicSpiritRadio.com. Go there, and it will take tell you how to make a donation. If you would like to call us, you can call us at 309-807-2427. Again, that's 309-807-2427, and give us a call. I hope everyone out there had a happy Memorial Day. Uh, Lynn and I were gone on that weekend and were unable to do the show. And then last weekend, some things come up, came up and we were unable to do the show as well. So we're glad to be back and it's good to be back. We're heading into summer. We hope that we have a good summer and it doesn't get too hot. Although it looks like it's coming up this week is going to be a sort of hot week, but uh, maybe it'll return to a more regular summer. Let's all pray for that. They will have good sunny weather, and uh, not too hot and not too humid. We did have our bishop, our new bishop here to visit us. Bishop uh, Louis Tilka was here at the radio station and blessed our station and came and gave us a visit. And uh, he will be giving uh, a, 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 there was an interview here with the bishop and that will be aired. And my wife is going to give us the, uh, a little bit of information on that. And then we'll get into, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about Russia, Ukraine, and the return of nationalism I was talking about a few weeks ago. And there is more on that that I want to talk about. It's very, very important. It has a lot of uh, interest to Christianity and Catholicism as well. So we'll return to that. But I'm going to turn it over to Lynn, and she'll talk just a bit uh, about the bishop and uh, his uh, when, when we will be having that interview aired. Yes, Bishop Tilka. Our new bishop, well, he is really relatively new to us in our diocese here in Peoria. He uh, came on Thursday very graciously, uh, blessed our station and our endeavors. We were so pleased to have him and looking forward to maybe he'll come back again sometime to see how we're doing. When we missed Last week, I've got to tell you, my daughter had a weekend where she's the only one of our kids that's around here, had some free time, which doesn't happen too often, and she came and helped clean out the basement. You know, when you lived in a house for 50, 60 years, (laughs) you accumulate lots of spiders and spider webs and junk. And it was, I was so pleased to have the help that that's why we weren't able to be with you. I had to take advantage of her. 
And Bob is going to get on here and talk about what's going on over there, overseas, over there. And what about uh, Bishop Tilka? When will that uh, interview, we did do an interview with him. Uh, and, uh, uh, right, Paul Garcia did an interview with him. Yes. And uh, that should be aired. And when will that be, Lynn? Well, to be on, well, if you're listening to us now, you probably probably will be able to catch him. The first and only time would be at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon tomorrow. Or Will he also yeah. be on Saturday night as well? He'll be on Saturday night then at uh, 3 or three o'clock Saturday afternoon. And then next weekend as well. And then and next weekend. Good. Yeah, next, next weekend, weekend at 3 because... Usually when you're listening to us, it's at 10 o'clock at night on Saturday, so you've missed that Saturday, 3 o'clock. That'll be good. So just remember. Looking forward to it. Right. 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Saturday and Sunday, and then next uh, Saturday and Sunday as well. So Tell your uh, friends. Uh, make sure that you listen because uh, it would be it's an interesting interview. Rather in-depth. At any rate, uh, I'm going to talk today, and it's a, I'm going to read an article. It's a fairly long article, but I think it's really necessary to look into what's going on in Ukraine a little bit more because uh, there are some implications for the, for the church. I'm going to read from an article in Chronicles magazine by Christopher Roach. It's entitled, Russia, Ukraine, and the Return of Nationalism. Uh, the Russian-Ukraine war has become a proxy fight between American-led globalism and the alternative, a multipolar world of nation-states free from American hegemony. And that's the headlines and the, the title of the article and the headline underneath it by Christopher Roach. And I'll read from that. And I think as I read along, it'll be self-explanatory how this bears on the existence of Christianity and especially uh, the Orthodox traditional Catholicism. Uh, according to Christopher Roach, this has turned into a proxy war uh, where liberal sort of one-world progressivism and uh, also so-called, at least, conservatism sort of converges and coincides, both sides supporting the war. And the question is, is do, you know, are both sides supporting the war for the same ends or are they supporting the war for different ends? And uh, the uh, how can this be? And, you know, that both sides can be supporting this war. And if there is a conflict in ends, uh, you know, how would that be resolved? And uh, what is at stake here in this war? And what are the ultimate uh, competing forces from an Orthodox Catholic point of view that are involved in this war? All these are questions uh, that we all should be considering. And this article does, I think, a good job of laying this out and uh, trying to make clear what's at stake and what's going on in this war. And uh, as I read along here, we're certainly not supporting this war from one side or the other. I feel sorry for the uh, Ukrainian people who are caught in the middle of this thing. And it's been going on a lot longer than anyone would have expected. And there's a lot of destruction and uh, loss of life and suffering and 
immigration on account of it, or emigration, I guess we should say, <laughs> immigration into other countries surrounding Ukraine, emigration from Ukraine, and a very sad situation for everybody, and everybody can understand and sympathize. But I think as Catholics, we need to know, you know, the larger stakes that are going on and a greater understanding of how this came about and what the forces are. So that's what we're going to go into here in this article. It says, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has become a test case for the ambitions of the United States and its Western European allies to impose their vision on the world. And he's talking about this idea of the Great Reset or the, you know, one world idea or the right side of history, whatever you would want to call that, that is sort of being pushed uh, by the Western uh, forces uh, at this time. It says, whether called the New World Order, the rules-based international order, globalism, or in the argot of its critics, global homo, <clears throat> the ideals and prestige of the West's managerial class are implicated by Russia's resort to old-fashioned force against what it sees as a growing security threat from Ukraine and NATO. And the word here, emphasis on managerial class, and the fact is, is that we always hear this idea about spreading democracy or defending democracy or fighting from democracy. But for a lot of people in the United States, especially people on a conservative side, it seems that our democracy has become more or less uh, a bureaucracy and that our country is being managed by a lot of people who are put in place in organizations that are put in place over which we seem to no longer have control. And I think that's what Christopher Roach is talking about when he's talking about this managerial class. He goes on, It's hard to say how much longer the war will go on. Many a war that was supposed to be over by Christmas, as was said of World War I, has lasted many years. Some factors that may portend a longer, more destructive war have been the West's cheerleading, severe sanctions, transfers of sophisticated weapons, and encouragement of mercenaries to join Ukraine in its fight. Even so, Russia appears to be slowly, by fits and starts, to be, on, to be conquering the eastern half of the country. By mid-March, Zelensky had already signaled that some key Russian demands, like force-wearing NATO membership, are realities that he will accept. So far, negotiations have not achieved any significant breakthroughs, and the war is still going on, and it seems to be escalating. While it is hard not to feel some admiration for the Ukrainians and their plight, it is dizzying to see how fast and how aggressively the West has rallied around Ukraine. Ukrainians, after all, are fighting for ancient, pre-modern ideas like sovereignty and uh, the historic connection to its soil. For the participants, it is an unfortunate war between brothers arising from irreconcilable claims to the same territory. Neither side exemplifies the cosmopolitan values of the New World Order. In other words, it seems that the New World Order, uh, actually through the powers of the United States and uh, Western Europe, is pushing this war. But the people in Ukraine are not really examples at all 
of the cosmopolitan values of the New World Order, and of course, Russia is not either. And so we're, we're having two sides fighting each other that don't represent at all the side that is pushing this, which is the side of progressivism. Even so, the Russian-Ukraine war has become a proxy fight between American-led globalism and the alternative, a multipolar world of nation-states free from American hegemony. This is why good liberals in the West are making excuses for those who are literally neo-Nazis and Jewish oligarchs are funding extreme Ukrainian nationalists. And the point I think he's making here is that uh, in other words, liberalism certainly doesn't coincide in any way with Nazism. And yet at the same time, look at right here in the United States, it seems to be the progressive liberal side that is excusing people like Antifa, who, of course, are are supposed to be against fascism, but actually seem to represent fascism itself and are more Nazi-like uh, than their counterparts. And yet liberals seem to be allowing this and going along with this as long as it seems to be pushing the ultimate agenda, which is this idea of progressivism or one-worldism or globalism, whatever you want to call it, the new world order. And uh, this is why these liberals are supporting this kind of thing. Uh, while they undoubtedly consider their new allies distasteful, both the oligarchs and the Western politicos see a common enemy in Russia under the rule of Vladimir Putin. The subjective motives of the Ukrainian or mercenary combatants are ir- irrelevant to these broader geopolitical and eno- economic concerns of the globalists. So in other words, these people are not looking at the specifics that are going on in Ukraine as much as they are looking at their broader, more long-term goals of progressivism, the new world order, or globalism, whatever you want to call it. And I think you get the same thing when he's referring to here to some of the, you know, using the, the so-called Jewish oligarchs. Uh, he's mentioning are people who, in a way, are actually anti-Jews who are actually anti-Israel in a sense that they don't want to be Israel to be a sort of nationalist state. They want it to be more or less part of the new world order and not sort of a, you know, an, a, a Jewish nationalism unto itself. So this is what's going on here. It goes on. The objective threat to Russia of an expansive Western neoliberalism cannot be denied especially after NATO powers unleashed themselves on Serbia, Iraq, Syria, and Libya in the preceding decades. Under the spell of a misguided and aggressive idealism, Western leaders are more concerned than ever with uh, democracy and the internal affairs of others. And uh, Roach here has democracy in quotes. And what he means, again, I think is this managed democracy in which more and more people in countries and the world over don't really have direct control of their democracy anymore, but are more or less managed by a fixed bureaucracy over which they have very little control. In the eyes of these leaders, Putin has reversed Russian progress and driven the nation backwards to its ancient stereotypes. The 19th century French travel writer Marquis de Custine described Russia as backwards, illiberal, authoritarian, and chauvinistic. If Russia were allowed to be all these things and to succeed on the world stage anyway, 
the prestige of the Western liberal, liberal order would take a serious hit, just as the attempts to impose democracy in the Middle East were discredited by America's ultimate failure in Afghanistan. In other words, uh, the type of democracy we were trying to, uh, to, to impose didn't work or was rejected or simply was not compatible with the type of people and uh, government that, that was there. It is ironic that the traditionalism, chauvinism, and illiberalism of Putin's Russia seems almost identical in character to Ukraine's far-right nationalist political parties, such as Svoboda and Right Sector. One difference is that Russian nationalism is more ethnically diverse and religiously ecumenical as it champions harmonious cooperation between ethnic Russians and Tatars, Chechens, Dagestanis, uh, Carolinians, and other peoples who make up modern Russia. Like the rhetoric of Russia, Russian ultra-nationalist political figures Alexander Dugan and Vladimir Zhirinovsky, Ukrainian ultra-nationalists express trenchant criticism of the hedonistic materialism that pervades Western Europe. And they offer Ukraine's more traditional and Christian culture as a worthy example to counter the West's immoral tendencies. And we're going to have to stop here and take a break, but I think that uh, it's important here to understand what he is saying. Roach is saying here is that the Ukrainians and the Russians are more alike than they are different, and yet they are fighting each other over uh, disputes over territory and not over what the people outside of Russia or outside of Ukraine are fighting for in pushing this war. So we'll come back to that and talk about that more as we go on with the article. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. God is so loving. He is bountiful with his love for us. And in his bounty, he has given us Catholic Spirit Radio and especially our own local Catholic Spirit Radio. But even though he has given us the opportunity with this radio station, he still needs our cooperation. And that cooperation means sharing our financial resources to support Catholic Spirit Radio. To encourage you to support Catholic Spirit Radio with your financial resources, I am making a $5,000 challenge match for Matching Mondays. Every dollar you donate on a Monday in the month of June, I will match up to $5,000. This means your donation is doubled. Use the Matching Monday button on the Catholic Spirit website or mail your donation to 108 Boykins Place in Normal. Matching Mondays in June. Together, let's keep Catholic Spirit Radio alive and sharing God's message of love. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break. We're talking a little bit more about what's going on in Ukraine and uh, the implications it has for uh, Christianity in general and Catholicism, especially traditional or Orthodox Catholicism in particular. Uh, we're talking here about the fact that Ukrainians and Russians are actually more alike than they are different in their ideas about culture and about a nation. And yet they are fighting each other. And the reason why uh, it, the article goes on to say, it says this is arguably a case of the narcissism of small differences. 
being next door to Russia, Ukrainian nationalism is preoccupied with being less Russian and more Western, even though the Ukrainians and the Russians are, are much alike. Thus, after the 2014 Maiden coup, and that is in 2014, we actually replaced the government of Ukraine. The United States was involved in this, and when I say we, uh, it was more than just we, but the United States was involved. The Obama administration was involved. Uh, the government in Ukraine uh, was replaced uh, with the current government that is there now. In, in other words, a legitimate government was replaced by another government, and uh, that caused a lot of uh, you know this junction in Ukraine. And at that time, Ukraine passed a language law requiring Ukrainian language in schools even though half the country speaks Russian and the two languages are very similar. In other words, what he's saying here is, is that uh, the small differences between the two countries are, are actually uh, sort of blown up and made bigger than they really are simply because uh, Ukraine, of course, uh, has a dispute and a worry that uh, Russia would take them over as a territory, and they want to remain uh, nationalist, as many of the other uh, parts of the Soviet Union want to remain nationalist. And yet, it, the progressives, in a sense, that are pushing this war are not nationalists at all. So it's a very, very confusing mix-up. Ukraine's leadership have also expressed the desire to join NATO and the European Union. The NATO part is obvious. They believe this would vouchsafe protection from Russia. But the desire to be part of the EU system, that is the European Union system, should be more troubling to Ukrainians. Far from enhancing sovereignty, Ukraine's embrace of the EU model would mean restrictions on protecting domestic industries, mandatory recognition of gay rights, open borders to the third world, the flight of their most talented professionals, and all the rest. In other words, a lot of what has happened in our own country, much of our own uh, industry, and uh, have been actually uh, outsourced uh, to the third world, and we are understanding that today, the fact that uh, we're so dependent on goods and services coming in from other countries instead of being done right here in the United States, and this whole idea of this is part of this progressivism or globalism, if you want to call it that, or managed democracy. There is a tragic irony of Ukrainian nationalists pursuing this style of managed democracy because it empowers an army of unelected bureaucrats and, it's, and it privileges the influence of foreign non-governmental organizations, NGOs. And uh, this is what we've been talking about, and it's happened a lot even here. If Ukraine were to succeed in joining the European Union, its membership would ultimately destroy the distinctiveness and character of Ukraine, just as France, Germany, Greece, and Sweden have each found when their national identities were eroded by the EU's plan for a post-Christian and post-national order. And there's where Christianity comes in, the idea of a post-Christian order being imposed not only on some of these countries, but on the whole world as well, with the United States not only joining it, but being a leader in it. 
And this is what was at stake for the Catholic Church and for Christianity in general. The distance between popular, popular opinion and the dictates of the European Union are even more pronounced among the former Warsaw Pact nations. Far from seeing nationalism as the legacy of the Third Reich, those nations view it as the force that successfully resisted and ultimately obtained independence from the Soviet Union following the Cold War. And this reference to the Third Reich here is this. In Europe, and especially in Germany, the whole idea of Hitler and the Third Reich is blamed on nationalism. Somehow or another, because Hitler was considered a nationalist, nationalism is dangerous because it leads to a Nazi-like state. And the fact is, as we'll see, I don't think that's true. And I don't think Roach thinks that's true either. It was, in fact, actually American nationalism that opposed Nazism. It, uh, we, we were certainly not, at the time of World War II, some kind of nation uh, in, bent on creating a new world order. Hungary and Poland, now significantly burdened by the Ukrainian refugees, have been threatened with the removal of subsidies after the European Union's highest court demissed their challenge to EU interference with their internal affairs. Radio Free Europe noted the EU has been locked in a bitter battle with Poland and Hungary, criticizing the two countries for adopting measures that curb the rights of women, LGBT people, and migrants, and for stifling the freedom of courts, media, academics, and non-governmental organizations. But the fact is, is that from the Polish point of view, they see these things as part of their own nation and as things they should handle and uh, pr promote or not promote from their own particular cultural point of view not from some world culture that disagrees with their both their religion and their cultural history. And so there is a, a rift between this idea of globalism and the idea of uh, Christianity, uh, uh, Catholicism, and nationalism in general. Western Europeans shed most of their nationalism in the wake of World War II, while the Soviet Union blamed the Third Reich on capitalism. The West pinned the rise of Hitler and the Nazi Party on nationalism, and I just mentioned that earlier. Writing in The Guardian, political scientist Ivan Krestev puts it as follows. Post-war German democracy was built on the assumption that nationalism leads ineluctably to Nazism. As a result, any expression of ethno-nationalism came close to being criminalized. Even the national flag at football games was viewed with suspicion. Germany's radical approach isn't difficult to understand, given the exceptional nature of the Nazi legacy it had to deal with. In other words, unlike the Versailles settlement, talking here about the settlement after World War I, the antidote to German nationalism after World War II was not a more robust English or French nationalism, rather preventing the rise of a similar movement in Germany or anywhere else became a major concern for the victorious allies. This containment would be achieved by rejecting ethno-nationalism altogether. 
the United States would serve the Western role model of multi-ethnic civic patriotism built on democracy and individual rights. Not only American ideals, but American power contributed to this state of affairs. Then and now, the United States dominated NATO, and the U.S. continues to have troops stationed in Germany. As NATO's first Secretary General, Lord Ismay, famously observed, NATO's purpose is to keep the Soviet Union out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. The latter part of Ismay's motto is significant. Not only was West German democracy limited by various laws preventing the legal existence of national parties, but similar restrictions on speech and political action have proliferated throughout Western Europe under the rubric of laws against extremism, hate speech, and Holocaust denial. And we have that, a lot of that being promoted here as well. Beyond these legal restrictions, there is a general taboo on expressions of nationalism in Europe, such as the waving of national flags as compared to the United States. But as anyone can see, that is becoming more prominent here too, this anti-nationalist movement and this idea that patriotism and conservatism and love of country is somehow associated with uh, fascism and uh, right-wing extremism. These European taboos on nationalism are illustrated by the way the elites circle the wagons to push the technocrat Emmanuel Macron to the fore of France's presidential contenders by the passive-aggressive delay of Brexit in the United Kingdom. And there was a lot of, of uh, opposition to the fact that the British people wanted out of Brexit and wanted to restore their own national order. Uh, the biggest source of friction between the elites and the common people of Europe has arisen from immigration. The treatment of migrants and refugees has become a purity spiral, wherein European leaders have to show their rejection of ethno-nationalism by allowing their countries to be overrun by extremely different and sometimes hostile populations from the Middle East and Africa. And we have our own immigration problem in this country as well. The country most preoccupied with such commitments, Germany, embraced this position to an extreme degree under Angela Merkel. In other words, the entire America-led NATO alliance and the parallel institutions of the EU are all animated by a pervasive fear of ethno-nationalism, which for modern Europeans is one step removed from the Nazi regime and its crimes. In this telling, a European nation should no longer be defined by an overarching Christian faith, by a common language, or by, by the historic peoples who made up its culture. And I think we're having this, this split, not only in the United States, but also in other countries as well. Most people are wanting a return to their own language, a return to their own culture, a return to their own history, and uh, a feeling of national identity. 
And in my opinion, there is certainly nothing wrong with that. In fact, it was actually our own national identity that opposed Hitler. And it was Hitler who was running around the world establishing an empire. He might have been called a nationalist, but a true nationalist would not be trying to extend his country into everybody else's country as Hitler was doing. As in Western capitalism, Soviet communism tolerated only limited expression of nationalism as an ornament such as traditional folk dancing or other harmless celebrations. So communism itself, which has ended in Russia, was really not nationalist. And I, I think it had more in common with Hitler, and Hitler had more in common with it than either one of them had in common with real nationalism. Even this came to an end under Stalin's rule. The Soviet Union's more dominant philosophy was dialectical materialism, which canceled progress, economics, or which, I'm sorry, which canceled progress, economics, and trusting the science of scientific socialism. And we have had this emphasis on not scientific socialism so much, but as trusting science and so forth in other areas. And we have a huge emphasis in this country by the technocrats, by the, by the big, uh, big tech, uh, an emphasis on economics. Uh, rather than on an emphasis on our cultural uh, history and our cultural uh, understanding, cultural language, and uh, our Christianity. While the Soviet Union tried aggressively to subordinate any political expressions of national identity in favor of a more broad-minded commitment to the communist revolution, the new Soviet man never really emerged. In fact, actually, you know, the opposite happens. People retreat back into their own kind, their own language, and their own nationalities. In other words, it seems like this sort of anti-nationalism actually breeds a stronger nationalism. As its economic system imploded in the late 1980s, the constituent people of the Soviet Union returned to their ancient ethnic, linguistic, and religious roots. The latent nationalism of Lithuanians, Georgians, Chechens, and of course Ukrainians had much to do with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and much to do with their desire to return back to their nationalist and cultural roots. This same nationalism also fueled widespread ethnic fighting, including the ethnic cleansing of Russians from the once multinational empire's newly independent states such as Tajikistan and Ab 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 Abkhazia. When the Soviet Union imploded in 1991, key figures in the West, including President H. W. George H. W. Bush and Secretary of State James Baker, were more concerned about the dangers of nationalism than they were of, of communism. The American leaders tried at first to prevent the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which they feared would become what Baker called Yugoslavia with nukes. In other words, they were afraid that it would return back to some kind of very uh, small nationalist uh, state in chaos, all with nuclear weapons, and it would be better to keep it uh, together as some kind of a union rather than let that happen. When this failed, Western-funded NGOs, Radio Free Europe, and American and European advisors tried to tamp down the movements that were either too nostalgic for communism or too openly nationalistic. 
In some cases, the movements were both, as in Russia's National Bolshevik Party. In 1996, Time magazine triumphantly reported how the Clinton administration and its experts helped keep Yeltsin in power through sophisticated and possibly fraudulent election assistance, the American and NATO prerogative to manage the newly democratic Soviet Union was entirely uncontroversial. In other words, this whole idea of somehow managing and or helping establish some kind of management in the Soviet Union was taken as something for granted by uh, the administration at that time. Of course, it's true that nationalism is not without its risks. There was a time when conservatives criticized nationalism as a dangerous artifact of the French Revolution. The European right generally preferred multinational Christian empires as more moderate and just forms of government. A world of competing nationalism can lead to injustice, extending to the extreme injustices of genocide and ethnic cleansing that does sometimes happen. But it happened mainly because the nationalism in the first place was displaced and uh, caused uh, to be sort of chaotic by the intrusion of non-nationalistic forces such as Hitler's empire building and uh, other forces such as the Soviet Union along those same lines. We're going to have to stop here and take a break, so stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Listeners support Catholic Spirit Radio in many different ways. Some write checks. Others use credit cards. But did you know that you can also give Catholic Spirit Radio your old car, truck, boat, motorcycle, or RV, even if it's not working? Donating your vehicle is easy. We take care of everything from pickup to tax receipt. Just go to CatholicSpiritRadio.com to click on the Donate Your Vehicle link or call 866-628-CARS. God is so loving. He is bountiful with His love for us. And in His bounty, He has given us Catholic Spirit Radio and especially our own local Catholic Spirit Radio. But even though He has given us the opportunity with this radio station, He still needs our cooperation. And that cooperation means sharing our financial resources to support Catholic Spirit Radio. To encourage you to support Catholic Spirit Radio with your financial resources, I am making a $5,000 challenge match for Matching Mondays. Every dollar you donate on a Monday in the month of June, I will match up to $5,000. This means your donation is doubled. Use the Matching Monday button on the Catholic Spirit website or mail your donation to 108 Boykins Place in Normal. Matching Mondays in June. Together, let's keep Catholic Spirit Radio alive and sharing God's message of love. Hi, this is Bob Johnson. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break. And we're talking about the problems in Ukraine, the Ukraine war. And I'm reading from an article in Chronicles Magazine entitled Russia, Ukraine, and the Return of Nationalism. And uh, we will continue that. Uh, Consider that the Ukrainians and Russians are now fighting over who is the rightful heir of Ukraine and its disputed southeastern region, which the Russians call Novorussia, meaning New Russia, 
Seventy years ago, Ukraine and Polish nationalists wielding pitchforks attacked one another's villages over competing claims to the vaguely defined region between southeastern Poland, southwestern Belarus, and western Ukraine, known as the Volnia. Some 100,000 Poles were killed by the fanatical Ukrainian nationalists under the leadership of Stephen Bandera. This horror show ended only because the ethnic cleansing was more or less completed on both sides. So nationalism can lead in certain circumstances to uh, war or to uh, sort of uh, tragic things. Uh, But the fact is, again, if we look at this, it's because there was such a displacement of nationalism in the first place by communism and also by Hitler's empire building, uh, fascistic empire building, which is certainly not nationalist uh, strictly. But nationalism also has a more humane face. As the Russian dissident novelist Alexander Solonitsyn wrote, uh, in recent times it has been fashionable to talk of the leveling of nations, of the disappearance of different races in the melting pot of contemporary civilization. Solonitsyn goes on to say, I do not agree with this opinion, but its discussion remains another question. Here it is merely fitting to say that the disappearance of nations would have impoverished us no less than if all men had become alike with one personality and one faith. Nations are the wealth of mankind, its collective personalities. The very least of them wears its own special colors and bears within itself a special facet of divine intention. In other words, Solonitian is saying that actually God has intended that the various nations exist and various peoples, of course, exist uh, naturally in peace with each other. But, uh, in fact, it seems to me that the left is always saying itself, uh, celebrate diversity. But is it celebrating real diversity? Or is it only celebrating sort of a fake diversity as long as everybody believes in uh, whatever its uh, actual uh, particular ideology is? While many on the right may prefer a harmonious Christian monarchy, this is no longer part of the terrain of modern political life. The choice is now between robust competing nationalism and an American-led globalism that tends toward uniformity, hostility to tradition, a preoccupation with economic concerns above all else. Thus, the populist right chooses nationalism. After all, if nationalism has a mixed track record, so do the utopian anti-nationalist philosophies undergirding leftism, including communism, socialism, and the American empire's expansive neoliberal ideology, which repeatedly wages war in order to make the world safe for democracy. And we have to admit, if we look at what's been going on, that we have been interfering all over the world in this idea that we have to make the world safer democracy. But it always is a managed democracy, mostly uh, managed by bureaucrats and uh, without a lot of control, or perhaps hardly any control, by the people themselves. 
as opposed to utopian ideologies, nationalism is grounded in reality, and national identity remains a deep longing within the hearts of modern men. And I would agree. And this is why you see this so much in a lot of these small countries finally released from the Soviet empire. Uh, they were wanting to return to their own roots, their own language, their own culture, their own art, their own feelings of identity and belonging together. It's a strong, strong human need. And uh, it isn't necessarily something that's bad. It can be something that's very good. The United States and Western Europe's pretense to speak for the international community has generated nationalistic opposition in places such as Brazil and India, both of which abstained from endorsing sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. So there are people who are disagreeing with uh, us on this idea of nationalism. Well, combined with China, also driven by nationalistic fervor despite its communist political system, and we've seen that in Russia. Many countries still had huge nationalistic longings, even though they were supposedly a part of the Soviet empire and supposed to be changed into the new Soviet man. That didn't come about, and it's not coming about in, in China either. A lot of people in China, including the Falun Gong, for example, are trying to revert back to their own culture and uh, incorporate some of their own religion into a form of uh, Christianity that's sort of syncretic. These three nations represent more than a third of the people on earth. Nationalistic countries are on the rise, growing in number and economic and military power. Post-war America as the lone hegemon has generated a great, generated a great deal of international friction and resentment by pursuing economic and diplomatic relations in which subordinate nations have had little to say in their national destinies. As a result, much of the nationalism in the third world now conceives of itself as explicitly anti-American because the Americanism of the sole superpower variety amounts to a global empire. And uh, this is hardly, you know, uh, nationalism. And again, going back to the idea that Hitler was a nationalist, Hitler was trying to create a global empire. Instead of leading to the defeat of Russia and its authoritarian model, the Russian-Ukraine war may serve to strengthen and enhance ties between Russia and the various emerging powers, the other so-called BRIC countries, that is, Brazil, India, and China. Varying greatly in their political forms, some democratic, some authoritarian, and some technically communist, they share a common interest in weakening an increasingly intrusive and demanding United States and European Union. Thus, these emerging powers are rooting for Russia to reduce the West's prestige. Domestically, the American right is familiar with the bait-and-switch tactics of the Republican Party. For years, the GOP has promised to fight the culture war and to champion the interests of religious Americans. But when in power, it either does nothing or actively fights to advance the leftist goals. There is a reason Donald Trump won the 2016 election. And that's why I was asking earlier in this article, what are the conservatives uh, supporting the Ukraine war fighting for? Are they fighting for the nationalism of Ukraine? Or are they fighting for the globalism 
of the leftists uh, or liberal group that is supporting that war in Ukraine? Do we really know? And uh, how do we find out? In similar fashion, Ukraine's leaders have done a bait and switch upon the Ukrainian people. <clears throat> While President Vladimir Zelensky and his predecessors have promised an authentic expression of Ukrainian identity and robust national sovereignty, their Western-oriented <coughs> agenda means that the Ukrainian people will ultimately end up with new world order homogenization and EU restraints on their national values. The influence and vague commitments of Western powers also have much to do with Ukraine's current lot a war in which the costs are chiefly borne by Ukrainians and which could have been avoided by more domestic gestures toward Russia. One reason Zelensky has become so popular in the West is because he serves the globalist agenda. Zelensky is Jewish, a small ethnic and religious minority in Ukraine, and doesn't even speak Ukrainian fluently. But Zelensky's outsider background makes him a symbol for the deracinated, multicultural Ukraine of the future that Europe would prefer. <clears throat> All across the transformed Europe of the future, blood ties to the land and the preference of the people will count for very little. This zeitgeist, that is, <clears throat> world spirit, was expressed in the Atlantic by Anne Applebaum, a Polish-American journalist, and herself a specimen of the globalist ethos she now describes. Here she says, The Ukrainians, and especially their president, Vladimir Zelensky, have made their cause a global one by arguing that they fight for a set of universal ideas based on a respect for the rule of law for a peaceful Europe where disputes are resolved by institutions, not warfare for resistance or for resistance to dictatorship. And that key words here are resolved by institutions. But whose institutions? The world institutions or the national institutions of Ukraine? And I think Applebaum here means will be resolved by world institutions outside of the control of the Ukrainian people. This view of Ukraine's future is a foreign import, one disconnected from the blood and soil nationalism of Lvov and its environments. As Putin said in his pre-war speech on February 21st, and here is Putin voicing this and trying to speak to the Ukrainian people, are the Ukrainian people aware that this is how their country is managed? Do they realize that their country has turned not even into a political or economic protectorate, but has been reduced to a colony with a puppet regime? The state was privatized. As a result, the government, which designates itself as the power of patriots, no longer acts in a national capacity and consistently pushes Ukraine toward losing its sovereignty. And again, is that what our conservatives are doing in pushing the war on Ukraine? What side are they on? Are they on the nationalist side as they profess here at home? Or are they on a world order side uh, as professed by the left? It's hard to know for sure. Ironically, it was the Soviet Union's plan for global communism and a brotherhood of man that ended in tears, ruin, and bloodshed. 
as well as revitalize national nationalism. In other words, it's it's this globalism and this empire building that actually led to a stronger nationalism once the, this globalism failed. From this, including our similar ill-fated campaign in Afghanistan, the Western-centered globalist alternative should learn an important lesson. A uniform rules-based international order that interferes with self-government everywhere will self-destruct. Nations and national identities should instead be allowed to flourish. This includes not only the Ukrainian nation, but the Russian one as well. By trying to expand the homogeneous global order to the doorstep of Russia, Ukraine now finds itself at war as a proxy for NATO and the EU. In the process, Russia has emerged as a symbolic champion, not only of its own nationalism, but of nationalism more generally. The Ukrainians, while they believe they are fighting for and animated by their own distinctive nationalism, are only being celebrated in the West as foot soldiers for globalism. The tragedy has many dimensions. In addition to the risks to Ukrainians, to Ukraine's people, its infrastructure, and to everyone else in the form of nuclear annihilation, in other words, this could bring on a nuclear war. Russia does have a lot of nukes. And it also has some new missile delivery systems that are supposedly extremely fast and, and, and something perhaps I don't know for sure that we are not, we are not in competition with. The tragedy will continue even if Ukraine somehow emerges victorious. Any such victory will prove to be Pyrrhic. That is, you know, it will be actually a defeat. Ukraine's sought-after independence, once achieved, will be erased by its marriage to the European Union and a new invasion of Western grifters, third-world migrants, and the suffocating tentacles of hostile bureaucrats. So, this is what that art, this article is saying. And in the process, remember, Christianity is involved here because this new world order, this progressivism, is a form of anti Christianism, anti-Christianity, and in general, and specifically anti-Catholic as well. And it's the, the whole idea of reducing the world to materialism and reducing the world to economics and to technology. And we are seeing this happen with the more and more influence that big tech is having on our own country, the, the internet and uh, how our youth and, and their thinking is being formed. And all of these things are supposedly being opposed by conservatism, but yet we find conservatism fighting on the side of Ukraine against Russia, but uh, is that conservatism fighting in favor of nationalism, or is that conservative more or less on the side of the New World Order? And uh, it seems like it's hard to tell, but there is a lot involved for us as Christians and especially as Catholics, and especially from the point of view of Catholic Spirit Radio as we look at Orthodox Catholicism, or you might say traditional Catholicism. So these are some of the things at stake. I hope the article has made things clearer 
we're certainly not reading it or promoting it in a sense of uh, being on one side or the other. Uh, the poor uh, Ukrainians seem to be caught in the middle in their country and their people are being destroyed by a very, very cruel war. And the question is, could it have been avoided? Uh, and uh, is are we moving toward a managed, so-called managed democracy that will be a one-world order in which the culture of the peoples involved in it will be displaced and destroyed? And the answer, of course, uh, according to this person, is that uh, anywhere that this is tried, this whole new world order is tried to be pushed on other people, that it eventually self-destructs when it interferes with self-government. And that's what we hope that uh, you, we will take away. Next week, we're going to talk about the philosopher who is close to Putin and who actually is sometimes called the brain of Putin, Alexander Duggan. And uh, his philosophical, theological ideas that are guiding Putin and may be uh, very responsible for Putin's reaction to what's going on in Ukraine and the whole Ukrainian war. So we'll talk about that next week to finish this up. And I hope it'll make it clear for everyone, especially Catholics, as to what's going on in Ukraine and how it implies uh, the whole world and how it affects uh, Catholicism, especially traditional Catholicism itself. So we're going to stop here and say our prayer. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all evil spirits, who wander through the world for a ruin of souls. Amen. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you'd like to contact Bob, email bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Catholic Spirit Radio relies on your support to bring programming like this and EWTN 24 hours a day. Please help keep Catholic Spirit Radio on the air with your generous support. Donate online at catholicspiritradio.com or send a donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. That's Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Catholic Spirit Radio is a 501c3, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio 